being told this devastating news about my son was just another one of those kind of heart-wrenching moments where you think, how are we going to deal with this? And also, this was a week before the first lockdown began. <laughs> Timing was not good. You're listening to Sharing Tales, the podcast which embraces and celebrates the roller coaster of life with me, Rebecca Clark. During this second series, we'll be hearing from a variety of new voices as each week my special guest joins me to generously share some of their personal stories. Life is full of highs and lows, and yet there's always hope. After all, we live to tell the tale. Welcome to this new episode of Sharing Tales. This week, I'm joined by the gorgeous Rian Pounceby. Rian describes herself as a multi-creative. She's been a stylist, interior designer, set designer, project manager and producer to name just a few. In the past, she has held leading creative roles across several luxury fashion brands, including Ralph Lauren, Paul Smith and Anya Hindmarch as well as partnering and collaborating with institutions such as Colette, Selfridges and Lane Crawford. Rian's work has taken her around the globe, working across all elements of creative direction, including store design, interior design, 3D pop-up design, fashion week show production and styling large luxury events in some of the world's most beautiful and iconic spaces, such as Beaux-Arts in Paris, Casino de Madrid, Abbey Road Studios in London, and Highclere Castle, the home, of course, of Downton Abbey. This broad and impressive experience led Rian to realising a long-term ambition to set up her own interior design and creative production studio, which she did after nearly 18 years in the luxury fashion business. Rian Pounceby Design was founded in 2019. A big part of setting up her own shop has been in exploring and understanding what makes her truly happy in life, as well as business. Rian Studio is focused on creating unique, highly desirable contemporary spaces. She delivers tailored interiors and design for private homes, developers, retail stores, as well as luxury experiences, embracing her clients' aspirations to create spaces as beautiful as they are usable. In Rian's own words, I bring together my passion, creativity and experience of styling and design to create beautiful spaces which truly reflect the personality of my clients and their needs. Rian lives in North London. Full disclosure, we're friends and neighbours with her husband, Nick, and their beautiful, sweet two-year-old boy, Raf. Hello, Rian. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited for us to have this conversation. Hey, thank you for having me. I feel like we should have a glass of wine when we do this. It's just slightly too early in the day. I know, it is before lunchtime, but you're absolutely right. (laughs) Well, so today we're going to talk about three chapters from your life. And the first is what you've called first job into the real world. Tell me what this part of your life meant for you. So I thought this was a good one to start with because it really kind of set me on my path, my career path and for where I am now. I had a great childhood, like everybody had ups and downs, I had divorced parents that I didn't see coming, but overall I had a really happy fun childhood. I loved university. Mm. I actually studied history at uni because I just loved it. I love everything to do with history. And at that point, still didn't know what I wanted to do. I was working for Topshop at the time and I had been since I was 16. So I'd worked on the shop floor. I was working as a visual merchandiser. I'd been a stylist there. And so that was kind of my first taste of fashion. 
which I loved. Mm. But yeah, at the time of going to uni, I decided to study history and figure out what I wanted to do after that. Where did you go to uni? Manchester, which I loved, had lots of fun. It was brilliant. <laughs> if I could do it all again, <laughs> I would. <laughs> Yes. Well, it's a really good university city. I was at Liverpool, so the rivals yes. of Manchester, but the Northwest, this is a very good time. <laughs> yes. Very cold and very wet, but very fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think my experience at Topshop kind of made me realise that I loved fashion and that's where I wanted to go. I'd managed to get some work experience at Paul Smith. I think my dad had pulled a few strings with some friends. He knew that. So this is back in Nottingham. This is back in Nottingham, which was never my plan. I loved mm. Nottingham. I loved growing up there. But once I'd got a taste of living somewhere else, Manchester, I had my sights set on London. Mm. That was what I was thinking. But Paul Smith is based in Nottingham. They also have a head mm. office in London, but the creative team is based in Nottingham. I did some work experience with them over the summer before I graduated from university and always kept in touch with them. And it just so happened that literally two weeks after my last exam, they offered me a job. Nice. So it was great. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's the dream. But at the same time, I had in my head, I was going to, you know, take some time out, mm. I've been studying, travel. But, you know, when you're offered a job like that, which was amazing, there's no way I could turn it down. What was the job at Paul Smith? What were you doing? The title was Visual Merchandiser, but there was a lot more creative elements to it as well. I think the first position I had was looking after House of Fraser, which had become a really big oh, right. account, Paul Smith. Mm. And we were, you know, designing spaces in there. So kind of the interiors, the colour palette, how it was all going to look, and then the styling of that space as well. And I remember my first day, my mum nearly had a heart attack. So I turned up there, they handed me the keys to a car and said, you're going to Manchester today. <laughs> I literally, and anyone who knows me know that knows that I'm probably wouldn't say the best driver in the world. <laughs> I've driven a lot now. I'm much, much better. Uh, but at the time, probably not. Didn't have that much experience. And I think when I called my mum and said, hey, you know, how exciting. And Paul Smith is the mini man. Yes, are his yes. thing. He probably all over the press. So everybody drove a mini. So I, <laughs> you know, I got the keys to this brand new racing green, white roofed mini and was just like, wow, like, you know, all my Christmas had come. My mum's like, what, you're going now? What, you're getting in the car and going? I was like, yeah, I'd be absolutely fine. No problem. Obviously driven to Manchester before. That's yes. where I went to uni. No worries. And I remember going to fill it up at the petrol station before I set off. And literally I got out the car and just stood there and thought, oh, I've actually got no idea how to fill the car up. And I actually had to ask somebody who was there on the floor <laughs> to help me. Which was just like a really great start. Yeah. But it was amazing because it just threw me into adult life. You need to get on with it and just go for it. And that's what I did. I was in Nottingham for about a year and then got the transfer down to London to look after the flagship accounts, which was amazing and probably then brings us on to the next stage. The next chapter. So you stayed with Paul Smith. You've had this first experience with them going all over the country going to different stores I think yeah. is that what you were doing yeah. and then you had an opportunity to stay with that company and come down to to London that's right yeah and so how did you feel about then leaving home again I guess and, and finally moving to the city oh I was super excited I'd always had my eyes set on London always wanted to go and make a life there it was exactly what I wanted and they knew that and that 
that's why, you know, they were great and they found an opportunity for me there. And because there is an office, it was pretty easy. And they needed someone to look after the flagship accounts, which was Harrods, Selfridges, having mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I jumped at it. It was fab. So you get down to London. You said to me you were very much working hard, playing hard. So I'm guessing this is in your 20s mainly. Yes. What were some of the highlights for you of that time? Oh, just all the new experiences, the people, all the places to go, restaurants, the bars, the clubs. We just had a great time. And actually, I had a lot of friends that ended up doing the same. So some friends from school in Nottingham, because I'm still very good friends with a lot of my friends from Mm. school, friends from Manchester. Lots of people ended up moving to London. I had this great crowd that I already knew whilst meeting new friends through work or other people. And yeah, we just had... We just had a roaring 20s, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And I stayed with Paul Smith for a couple more years. And then from there, I moved to Ralph Lauren, which, again, was a really great opportunity. And we'll talk a bit more as well about the kind of multi-creative side of things. Mm. I was really adamant that I wanted to stay in the creative sphere, but I wanted a lot of experience. I didn't want to be one dimensional and go down one route that kept me then in a certain job forever. I kind of wanted to get this broad experience that meant that I could eventually then do whatever I wanted within this kind of creative world. Mm. And it sounds from what you wrote to me before this, that Paul Smith maybe was a bit more of a domestic focused role. But once you moved to Ralph Lauren, things really opened up in an international way for your career. Yeah, that's right. So I started off again, working around the flagships styling, and then I moved to the creative team, which was designing the windows, designing the showrooms, because Obviously, we all know Ralph Lauren. It's a huge, amazing beast. And even the shows mm. were like film sets. You know, mm. we'd have blank canvases and we would totally recreate a, a set, basically. And so I ended up working on that team, which was fantastic. And that was a European role. So the idea behind that was we would go to New York and see what the teams in New York had done and work with them to create those huge film sets. And mm. then uh, we would bring that back and adapt it for the European market. So mm. the head office is in New York. They have huge warehouses where they create all of this for all of the collections, including home. And yeah, we would work on that with them there, see what they were doing, all the inspiration. And then we would adapt that and bring it back for the European market. We had showrooms in London, Paris, Milan, Stockholm, all over Europe. So that was an amazing opportunity then to go around and work with those individual creative teams to Mm. make sure that the effect was there, which was fantastic. And did you ever get to meet Ralph and Ricky? I did. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Not very long. I can't say I had a long chat with him, but I mean, the best one was him walking into the lift at the same time as me. That was a bit of a pinch me moment. (laughs) Yeah. I always remember seeing, it was an Oprah special. I don't know if you saw it with Ralph and they're at the ranch and it just seemed like that fact family just living some kind of crazy life just very aesthetically pleasing at every moment yeah yes yes absolutely and I think that's where I got my eye for the real perfection about it and I've been very lucky with the designers that I've worked with is that they've all been these amazing figureheads Mm. some brands have the name but actually there's a CEO or there's whatever there's not actually a person behind the name and the brands I've worked with all have that which has just been amazing because Ralph Lauren is Ralph Lauren it's his Mm. style it's his Mm. vision it's his homes like you said you see his ranch you see where his house in New York they are Ralph Lauren home Mm. that's what it is and the same with his clothing once you start at Ralph Lauren you become 
part of that. And even though I wouldn't necessarily say it's exactly my style, it becomes it because you are every day and you mean it. And, you know, anybody that you meet or speak to, everybody is in this kind of Ralph Lauren world and you mm-hmm. become completely immersed in it. So it's a real bubble. Yes. A branded yes. bubble. A brand bubble. <laughs> yes. Well, I hadn't actually made that observation before about going from Paul Smith and then Ralph Lauren and then Anya Hindmarch. Was that on purpose or did it just happen that way? No, it just happened that way. Maybe subconsciously it was because mm. the brands are very pure in that way. There's a very, very clear vision because you have these amazing figureheads and each one of them have been very different, but equally as involved and completely in love with what Mm. they're doing. So yeah, maybe subconsciously it was. And then also, you know, I think that is also why you become so deeply entrenched in those brands as well, because you Mm. have that person there to inspire you every day. I mean, working for Paul Smith, he was in the office every single day. You saw him every day, you know, he Mm -hmm. by name, which is incredible. And when, and the same with Anya, you know, I would have meetings with her on a weekly, daily basis. And to be able to get that information straight from the horse's mouth, as it were, mm. is, is really, is really great. So it sounds like you, you really landed on your feet, went from one great opportunity to another. Things were really going well with your career. Well, you wanted to speak a little bit about a really big event that happened for you at that yeah. time in your life as well. Yeah. When I was 24 in London, living my best life, my father became unwell, a mystery disease. We thought he had pneumonia, ended up in hospital, and he unfortunately passed away from cardiomyopathy, which is an issue with the heart. I wanted to mention that because it was just such a big changing point in my life. He was such a massive figure in my life as well. You know, we were extremely close and for that to be gone was just a huge shock and a huge wake up call to life and how fragile it is. I also wanted to mention it because I think it's something that took me a long time to actually work through. And now I can look back and see how that affected me at the time, but also what it allowed me to then become. Mm. So, I mean, I didn't deal with that for a long time. It was already work hard, play hard in London. And then it was work harder, play harder to escape I suppose I'm one of those people that can actually deal pretty well with big life events that happen. You know, I can sweat the small stuff (laughs) sometimes. I would definitely say that. But in terms of the big things that happen, I tend to just go, okay, you've got to get through this. And that's Mm. what I did. I remember not really crying at the time. I remember, you know, I'd be with friends that had grown up with my father as well, and they'd Mm. be in floods of tears. And I'd almost be consoling them because for me if I didn't just get on with life then it it would all fall apart Mm. but I think in doing that sometimes you then escape in other ways so I was going out a lot partying a lot traveling all over the world and and doing a lot of that as well basically living out of a suitcase and that kind of culminated in the end my long-term relationship ended I'd been with my ex-boyfriend for seven eight years and he's an absolutely amazing man and to be honest I think things had started to change between us but I then just pushed him away and was on this kind of a bit of a self-destruction I suppose Mm -hmm. I don't know whether I knew it at the time or not but couldn't deal with it right then it was just like escapism so that relationship ended and it then culminated in me becoming quite poorly 
So I was on a work trip in New York, actually, with Ralph Lauren. I'd had a sore throat and thought I had, you know, a bit of tonsillitis coming, but I still was doing those 12, 13, 14 hour days. And especially in New York, I think, you know, as well, the mentality there is like you work all hours and then you go out for dinner and you drink and then you have a few hours sleep and you get up and you do it all again. Yeah, start all over. Yeah, which again, you know, was where I was at at that time. So it was, you know, fine for me. But even when I knew I wasn't feeling well, I just kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing Mm. it. I woke up at about 3am one morning and felt this really like had such a sore throat, went to the bathroom and my throat had swollen to the side. I mean, it was basically meeting my cheek on the side. It was so swollen and my windpipe had started to close. And I ended up having to be rushed to hospital on the Upper East Side. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And so it was a type of, I can't even remember what it was called now, but it was on the same spectrum of tonsillitis, glandular fever, that Mm. kind of thing. And I ended up there in hospital for a few days, then Mm. on bed rest in my hotel for a few days. And then I basically snuck home in the end. I had just met my now husband. At that time, this was a super, super new relationship. And bless him, he was actually on holiday at the time and he flew back and I wasn't living with him. He'd moved me into his house and he took care of me. And this was a really, really new relationship. And you sort of then think, okay, maybe he's a keeper. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) To kind of look after me like that at that time was amazing. And I ended up off work for, I want to say two and a half months It was a long recovery. It was a long time. And I lost a lot of weight. All of that took me a very long time to build back up. I had a really low immune system for about two years after that because of all the drugs that I'd been on and how Mm. sick I'd been. That was a big kind of, okay, I need to start dealing with some of those things that happened and I need to start taking care of my body, which I hadn't done for a long time. Mm. And my husband was very into that. He'd also worked hard, played hard for many, many years. And a few years before he met me, he'd actually had a total kind of, that's it, no drink, no nothing. He was doing triathlons every weekend and he was Mm -hmm. super healthy and all about taking care of himself. He taught me a lot with that and I needed that kind of support and I needed to do that for myself to be able to get better. Do you think it showed up physically that we and you need to stop through that kind of physical healing Did you also then make space at that time for the emotional healing too? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I still think it's taken a long time to get there. And again, we'll touch on that later because I think my son's definitely helped with that as well. But yes, it did. It was a wake-up call of you can't keep running away from something. You have to now stop, take care of your body, which includes your mind, and start dealing with some of those things that have caused me pain that I was Mm. trying to escape from, basically. I think that decade of our 20s, it's a really, it's really significant, isn't it? And people's stories are different, of course, but it's almost as though life uses that time to bring up these different experiences because you did a lot. You yeah. had a lot going on with work. You had this huge bereavement with your beloved father, and then you've met your to-be husband. It's interesting, isn't it, that the pace slows a bit as we we get older. How do you think the things that happened in your 20s then prepared you perhaps or led you into your 30s? I think being able to say that I'd done a lot of what I wanted to do. And I remember thinking that at the time of deciding to have a baby, it was like, I have really had a great time. Like we all did in our 20s. We went for it. Even in my teenage years, I went for it as well, to be honest. So I'd had a lot of fun. It was almost like my body had said, okay, you've done 
this. I've let you do this. <laughs> but now it's time to step back and take care. And it's funny because I think about in your 20s and you go, but I'm never going to stop wanting to go out every Friday, Saturday and Sunday night. Like, yeah, I'm never going to want to do this. Why do people do this? And they have kids and they don't go out anymore. And I'm never going to be like that. And then time catches up with you. Your 20s become your 30s. And you're like, oh, okay. Mm. Actually, yes, I do. I do want to stay in on a Friday night and have a glass of wine and that's okay (laughs) yeah it's really funny I was saying to my husband just recently I remember specifically it was when we were living in Dubai so I was in my mid to late 30s mid 30s actually and that constant pattern of it's Friday and Saturday there for the weekend mornings of the hangover of lying on the sofa of doing nothing apart from watching TV and sometimes I would think is this me for the rest of my life will I just be lying on the sofa (laughs) most weekends and now fast forwarding to having a two-year-old like no no it it wasn't actually going to be me (laughs) I totally agree with you you know as well Becca that I am a massive lightweight and I always have been it's never stopped me (laughs) ever I've always gone for it and tried to keep up with everybody but never ever been able to you know hangovers used to be funny like you'd all be in the same boat and be like, oh, I feel so bad, but it's all right. We all feel like this. And now I feel depressed. Like I haven't had a hangover for probably before my son, honestly. And I have no intention of having one again, really. I'm sure there will be times and maybe when we come out of lockdown, maybe one of them. But I have no, I love, you know, I love wine. You know that too. But I like to enjoy the wine. I have no intention of going out and getting drunk anymore, which was my life. And, I, and I'm saying Friday, Saturday, it probably wasn't. It was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Exactly. So did you make a conscious decision? I know everyone's journey, if they choose to become a parent, is very personal and very different. For myself, I didn't have my daughter until I was 40. Mm-hmm. It was interesting what you were saying about that reflection of, yeah, I've done enough. I feel satisfied that I've been able to do a lot of the things I wanted to do. And I definitely felt that the time was right for me then. Yeah. So did you have that kind of conscious moment of, yes, now this feels time to think about starting a family? Yeah, I did. Well, Nick and I got married and he's a little bit older than me. So he's now 43. And he was ready as well. And because of that slight age gap, I had to take his feelings into account as well. And we sort of grew together with that and made that decision together that that we were ready to be parents. And I don't know whether, I mean, some people do, I know it's kind of, you know, they're calling and they always know they want, they want Mm. a family. I always knew I wanted to have a family, but it always felt in the future. I can't say that I ever had that real burning, like, I'm desperate for a child and I'm desperate for them now. It was more, I saw it in the future and then there becomes a time and age where you go, well, if I do see it in my future, I have to start seriously thinking about it now. So we did. I do have these slight OCD tendencies. I'm a real perfectionist and I'm very controlled in you know my work and how things are and very ordered. I know that hasn't sounded like I was in my 20s, but I have always actually been like this, especially mm. around work. And I read the books and I spoke to all my friends and everyone just kept saying, you know, you cannot prepare for having a child. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, but I am. But I am prepared. (laughs) I've got this. Yeah. And even with all the information, it's the hardest thing you've ever done. I was like, sure, yeah, no, I take that. I get that and and I'll be able to deal with it. And I think because I'm such a control freak, when he came, it was like, 
<laughs> nothing I had ever imagined or experienced before. And it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks, <laughs> to be honest. And, you know, he was the most amazing, beautiful thing. But I remember giving birth and going, what on earth just happened in those last 10 hours or so? What has happened to my body? What has happened to my life? Who is this little thing that's here and when is his mum gonna come and pick him up because yeah take take him I'm very very tired now yeah and I think you know everyone talks about this and this is quite a, a difficult thing for me to talk about to be honest but I do feel like it is something that needs talking about a bit more which is why I'm willing to share it is that you know everyone talks about having that instant connection and they put the baby on your chest and you feel this overwhelming sense of love and I didn't feel that to begin with. And Mm. when you don't, I think then all the guilt starts. Well, why don't I feel that? Why, why, you know, why don't I love him like everybody says you're going to? And am I a bad mother? Am I not supposed to do this? And all of those questions then come up, you know, and I have spoken to people after this who have said that they felt the same way, but I, I don't feel like it's something that's talked about very much because I suppose it doesn't sound very great when you say it, but being so out of control, having a child was definitely difficult for me. I then had a lot of trouble breastfeeding, which, you know, I tried super hard to do and it was in my plan to do, but just didn't happen for me and Raph. I took that very badly as well, thinking again, you know, I've had struggled to conceive and now I can't feed my child and all of these things, you know, I'm not a good mother. I shouldn't be allowed to do this, all of those things. And I ended up expressing for two and a half months, something like that, which took its toll as well, Mm. because the health visitors come round and everybody has a different experience again. But, you know, mine told me that I should be expressing around eight times a day to be able to feed my son as if I was breastfeeding him exclusively. Any new mother knows that's pretty much impossible (laughs) to be able to Mm. fit that in. But I tried. It was detrimental in the end because somebody else was holding him somebody else was changing his nappy whilst I was just sat expressing again and again and again and so him and I weren't getting that bonding experience Mm. because I was just trying to produce this milk that I felt was the most important thing that he needed and in the end it was you know my husband and both of our mothers that said please stop (laughs) you know it's much more important that you bond and you have this time with him than purely feeding Mm. and so you know in the end I took that advice and and that was a lot better that was definitely the right thing to do for me for us and you know I just found that he was you know sick all the time and he didn't sleep very well and anyone you spoke to you know it's just it's babies it's happens there was still something niggling me in the back of my mind that something still wasn't quite right with him and and this sounds very Mm. strange but he didn't look right to me and when I look back at old pictures I totally still know what I mean when I say that but he just always looked a bit sick and like I say we did have these issues with feeding and sleeping Mm. in the end we went to the GP and she said she thought she could hear a heart murmur in him and she said it might not be when babies are quite small and and thin you sometimes can hear the blood flowing but maybe we should go and check it out and I suppose that then takes me on to the next day. Yeah, yeah. So we went for those tests and we went to see two experts actually and they listened to his chest and said, "No, absolutely fine. It sounds clear, no problem. But let's do an echo and an ECG to just to to rule anything else out, just to say that we've done it basically." So fine, you know, we waited a couple of months for that because nobody was concerned, we weren't concerned. And I took him for the the ECG all came back fine. We did that straight away. Waited a couple of months for the echo and 
at the end of that appointment, they told me that I would be hearing from Great Ormond Street and that he had a very large hole in his heart, which again is the second kind of huge bombshell Mm. in my life that I'd had. And I touched on it before with you, you know, I, when my father died, that was a huge experience. I'd actually had quite a lot of loss through my life. You know, I'd lost all of my grandparents, well, before my father. So before I was kind of 23 Mm -hmm. and some of those Mm -hmm. had been quite traumatic times. A lot of family friends had passed from cancer, you know, for quite a a young person, I had seen and experienced quite a lot of loss, which had already made an impression on me. And then Mm -hmm. what happened with my father and then being told this devastating news about my son was just another one of those kind of heart wrenching moments where you think, how am I going to, how are we going to deal with this? And also, just to add on top of that, this was a week before the first lockdown began. (laughs) So timing was not good. Timing was not on our side. You mentioned before that you feel, you didn't use the word resilient, but that's what I was hearing. Kind of strong person, things happen and your go-to is like, okay, I can do this. What needs to be done? Was that your reaction when you heard the news about Raph? Yes, it was. I mean, I think instantly when I heard it, I cried for sure in that doctor's office Mm. because it was such a shock. But after that, yes, it was again that, okay, I still have an 18 month old son to take care of. So I need to pick myself up and we have to sort this out. We managed to find the head cardiologist at Great Ormond Street who also worked privately and we managed Mm. to get an appointment with him. I think it was like the next day or two days later or something. So we went straight to see him. He did a scan, which took 15 minutes where the one before had taken an hour and 20 and it'd been Mm -hmm. very traumatic in itself. Mm. He was just like a magician. We've called him. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he did it so quickly. Raph was absolutely fine. And he confirmed that he had a very large hole, which meant it was urgent, but it wasn't classed as an emergency. So He said, there's, unfortunately, there's no chance of this closing by itself because with the heart that has the four chambers, the mm. top was one open chamber. There was no wall in between whatsoever. And usually with ASDs, they can be anything from super, super tiny to what Raph's was, which was no hole at all. So unfortunately, there was nothing to even close. So there was no point in right. waiting. And there was also nothing for them to attach anything to using keyhole surgery. They were mm. going to have to rebuild the entire wall basically. So he confirmed at that moment that it was going to have to be open heart surgery. And in the usual timeframe, it would have been about eight weeks. But obviously with COVID, it was unknown, which in itself is extremely scary because you're going, so hold on, you should be doing this in eight weeks. And actually, we might have to wait longer, which is not is not what you want to hear at that point. But we had total faith in him and trust in him. And we just felt like he was going to do the right thing. He wasn't going to let anything happen to him. As soon as we went into lockdown, we had between then, so that was end of February, beginning of March and beginning of June, he was sick three times, like seriously virusy sick, one, including chickenpox. I mean, I have no idea. We haven't seen anyone, so I have no idea mm. how he got chickenpox, but he mm. did and he was super sick with it. And we were in constant contact with the cardiologist. And after the third time, he said, look, as soon as I'm allowed to, I'll get him back in. Mm-hmm. So on the 3rd of June, we went back in. And he repeated the scans and it showed that the whole, the heart had become much more misshapen, which had actually made the size of the the whole larger, even just within those couple of months. And so he said, Mm. okay, now I want to get, I want to get it done. I want to get it now. So he said, you know, this isn't normal protocol, but 
basically, you need to be prepared at a day's notice. I'll get him in as soon as I can, but you need to be ready that we'll call you. And it could be the following day. And that's exactly what happened. So we had that consultation on the Wednesday. On the Thursday, we got a call to say we were to go in for pre-op assessments on the Friday for operation Monday. Hmm. And that's how quickly it happened then. How had you been coping or did you have any kind of tools that you used or just to manage that period of having to wait, not knowing how long you'd have to wait? The country's in lockdown. We've got these restrictions, the fear of the virus as well. How did you manage with all of that? I'd started my business the October, September before, and I was still working at mm. that point. Lockdown had actually some projects were on hold. I was working on some um, retail store designs. They were on hold. But to be honest, I had to then put RAF first. In in that sense, it, the timing, I suppose, was okay in that I wasn't letting anybody down at that point because everybody was quite happy to put things on hold anyway. And especially with the first lockdown, when most of us were staying at home. Yeah. Stores were definitely not opening and people didn't know what was going to happen. So they weren't actually that up for spending the money at that point. Mm. So the timing worked okay in that sense, in that I switched off from work probably for the first time since I left university. It was like, Mm. okay, he's my focus. So at least that didn't give me, I wasn't doing that juggle between trying to work and care for him. I was just caring for him. That then also gave me the time to care for myself. So I know it sounds silly, but I love a bath. So lots of relaxing baths in the evening. Mm. I upped my exercise. I think I was doing about four times a week whenever he napped or because my husband was at home, he could take him for an hour or so while I did some exercise, meditation, journaling, all of those things that I'd always tried to do before. I really, really made it a priority to get into them and they work and it helped. Definitely. Mm. So Raf had his surgery. How is he doing now? He's absolutely amazing. It was like <laughs> an instant change. So obviously, you know, the scariest time of our lives mm. and because of the COVID restrictions, only one parent was allowed yeah. in. So it was only me. But they had, they'd warned us that it would be probably about a week, maybe just over in hospital. He had his operation on the Monday and we were home on the Thursday, which mm-hmm. I still can't quite get my head around. He was on life support breathing apparatus on the Monday night. By the Friday, we were kicking a football around the park he's just gone from strength to strength it's been completely life-changing touch wood because I'm definitely going to jinx myself now but he has not been sick since which for us is a game changer amazing so you mentioned that there are some lessons around these experiences what would you say are the, the key lessons that you've learned from this I definitely think taking care of yourself is a key one and I know there's a lot of this around in in sort of mental health things as well but I've realized how important it is is in that if you don't take care of yourself and your own mental health then you can't care for Mm. others so that's super important I think it really made me realize about my work as well and what was important to me although interior design and creative production doesn't necessarily sound like a well-being kind of industry that's what I'm trying Mm. to do as well I think as our spaces have become so important to us there are our homes there are little oasis there are escape now they also have to be our place of work and I'm really trying to incorporate all of those things into my designs that it's about helping people's well-being as well as giving them a beautiful functional space to work with so whether that's about greenery and how you might design a small garden Mm -hmm. or bring the outside in how you can split up those spaces Mm -hmm. so you have that real designation working space and you have that living space and you can create those changes and thinking about mood and colour because colour can have a really big effect Mm. on our mood and what those things mean to different people 
I think is is really important. So it's like conscious design. Yeah, exactly. And not taking those people for granted, you know, and realising how important family and friends are, which I think lockdown has helped a lot of us to do and realise anyway. But experiencing those losses and near losses. Yeah, I think I've just been a really big eye opener to being happy Mm. as well. I am somebody who does suffer from OCD tendencies, so I can get quite into my own mind and sweat the small stuff, like I've said before, that my husband would say, and get bogged down with things being absolutely perfect and not taking that step back to just appreciate what's in front of me. And I think that's definitely helped. And another thing I wanted to say about the kind of OCD tendencies as well is we always tend to look at them in a very negative way. And I've also tried to put a bit more of a positive Mm -hmm. spin on that as well, because, you know, you can do things to help yourselves, but you cannot change fundamentally who you are. And actually they've served me quite well as well through my career and what I've done in, in creation and design and styling being a perfectionist and being some somebody who has that eye for detail and about it being exactly right has actually helped me a long way in what I've done. And the organisation and the prep has enabled me to be where I am today. So although, you know, sometimes there can be negatives around that, then I think we have to see the positive sides of them as well. It's definitely finding the beauty and really embracing the beauty and what we might perceive as flaws. But as you say, it's often whatever that might be for an individual, recognizing that those traits or behaviors, whatever it might be, can serve you well. Yeah. And that they're sometimes even a gift to you in a lot of ways. Exactly. And as long as you work on the sides of them that don't serve you, and Mm. I think that's a really good word, it's what is serving me here. So yes, in, Mm. in my job and my organization, yes in my getting too bogged down with small things and and things having to happen in a certain order else Mm. I'm gonna lose it and freak out not so much so how can I how can I still make sure that it works for me in that way but that I just I pull back and I control that side of it a little bit but also I think it's what else it's taught me is about following your dreams because it sounds like a cliche but life is too short and Mm. my dad was the life and soul of the party and he had huge plans for his retirement and he'd worked super hard as a head teacher and he'd saved all this money and he had Mm. all these big plans and he never got to make them a reality Mm. and so I think it is as well live for the moment and do those things that make you happy my career means a lot to me and actually that was probably a big thing that impacted me as well when I had Mm. RAF was that I lost that part of my identity and I realised that it was a huge part of my identity and I wanted to keep it. I enjoyed it. And so it wasn't about working less. It was just about working in a different way that meant I could be a good mother and also I could do what I loved. Mm. And that's where, you know, starting my own business, I'd started doing some consultancy just after I had him. But I sort of realised that that's the way it needed to go. And actually, I felt super excited about that. And that's when I founded the company. You and I have talked at length about childcare and how we how we work that. And, but, you know, we're managing to. And I actually feel proud of being mm. able to, to do that. A lot of the current structures don't work and are not supportive or recognize the needs of families essentially and it's interesting it ties back to your creative work and being conscious about the spaces that you're designing and environments I'm reading a lot more recently about a move from work-life balance to work-life blend so acknowledging that for a lot of people who really do love what they do and don't want to give it up in the same way that you and I did when we had our babies how do we create our own kind of 
ways of working and bring other people with us or encourage other people to think creatively so that it's not just Monday to Friday you work and weekends are for the family. That doesn't really work anymore. It's acknowledging that it's more this kind of consistent piece of both, working, living, parenting, or whatever that looks like for you as an individual. Absolutely, because you can't switch off from parenting. <laughs> so you know, even if you put that time in and you plan, sometimes things have to change. I even thought doing this podcast with you today, we had to change the time slot yeah. because I suddenly thought, he's going to be shouting in the background. Is he going to sleep in time? But this is what we do. We adapt and we work around it. And that, again, is a really important part of the way that I design. And I think also in a lot of people's minds, they think of an interior designer or whatever. It's like somebody who'll produce something that might be beautiful, but it's like style over mm. substance. And that is true. You know, my job is to make a room or a house or a retail store or an office space work for my client. If it doesn't work, it's not yeah. right. It doesn't matter if it's beautiful. If it's not functional, it doesn't serve the purpose, then it's pointless. That's a big part of it. It has to work for you. And if it can make you feel good because it's so beautiful mm. at the same time, then that's the added bit and that's kind of the extra win and that's what I think is so important for people at this stage well because it's adding so much value whether it's a you know a home office or workspace you're going to be more productive if it's a beautiful calming bedroom you're going to sleep better they're entwined aren't they yeah exactly they serve each other yeah and I don't think people realize that all the time and like I touched on the paint color you know down to things like that the color the lighting the furniture is it serving that purpose have you got that big comfortable bed if you need it have you got that lovely rug that when you take your first step out of bed you put your feet on it's how all of those things work together and make you feel and I just think that's super important and if I can do all of that and do it in the way that works for my family and mm. my life too and I'm growing that's what I'm looking to do I'm building my business model I'm looking to expand I'm not trying to bring in a bit of money and kind of float and I do think you can have it all if you're realistic about your expectations. When you go back a couple of decades and you'd have all this lean in, women can have it all. Like I say, you can have it all if you have the right kind of expectations. You can't be a full-time mother and you can't have a full-time job. Yeah. You can't do both things if, if you if that makes sense. You can do both things, but like we talked about, there's a blend and there's a movement to it and there's an up and a down and some childcare, maybe you have to do some late nights. But you can't work, you can't sit at a desk in an office somewhere five, six days a week and be full time at home. And it's about where you position your expectations on that. I think. Yeah, there's a cost, isn't there? I was reading about a woman last week who's just finished her book and she was on Instagram being at pains to say, I'm not superwoman. I've done this, but there's a yeah. cost. And whether it's financial, emotional, not sleeping or working weekends, whatever it is. And I think it's that we can sometimes be sucked into thinking, oh, she or he's making it look so easy. Yes. But you, yeah, everyone's situation's different. There's a lot going on behind the scenes that you don't necessarily know about in order for these things to work. I totally agree with you. And that's why I think it's important to talk more about those as well. We've spoken about this before. Social media gives you the best side of somebody's life. And yeah, amazing that she's written that book, but has she then documented 
the sleepless nights, the crying children, the annoyed husband because he hasn't seen her for weeks or, you know, whatever. I think these conversations, the more honest side of those conversations need to be had because it's unrealistic to think that you can mm. be superwoman and do all of that stuff and still survive and function because you've got to take care of yourself somewhere within that as well. And I think people should be yeah. more honest yeah. about that. Less of the polished front, perhaps. Yes. Well. <laughs> she said, with perfectionism. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I've totally got my kind of at-home Zoom kind of look on with my um my sweatpants on. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too, but just with a bit of jewellery, you know, just with a bit of bling on a bit, top. A bit, a bit of lippy <laughs> to elevate things. Exactly. <laughs> so we're coming to the end of our conversation I've loved this so much Rian what's left for me to ask is what are your mantras I say mantras because you've told me you've got a few yeah for modern living so the first one that is really important for me is stay on your own path and focus on your own journey I think it's very easy for us to get swept away I am one for this and I have to keep coming back to my own mantra you know it doesn't always come easy Mm. and because I am such a perfectionist you know I will look at other people and go how is she doing x y and z looks like she stepped out of the salon holding that designer bag going on that holiday and having this amazing business you know well I'm not Mm. doing well enough and I can get sucked into that a little bit and I think you have to remember like we've just said you don't know what's happening behind closed doors and everybody's journey is different and it's their own and actually what do you want and I think when you feel like that and you look at somebody and you have those kind of feelings I think a lot of the time it's because there's something you're not doing or you're frustrated about something with yourself. And so I then try and turn it around and go, okay, I'm having those feelings. What is it that I don't think that I'm achieving that's making Mm. me feel like this? And I I try and turn it around and it's about my journey and my path. What is that comparison telling me? Yes. Exactly. So that's a really key one for me. The other one, which has been brought to me by my husband, which is a really great one, is you cannot walk in anyone else's shoes. Mm. Anytime I get frustrated with someone or, you know, I go to my husband and go, so-and-so said this or this happened at work. He always is like, take a step back. You, You cannot walk in anyone else's shoes. You don't know what's going on behind closed doors. You don't know what they're feeling. You don't know what's made them say that comment that's annoyed you so much. My husband's very clever and things like that. For him, he does look after himself and it comes back to him. And, you know, he wants me to be happy because he loves me, but also if I'm happy, he's happy, you know, and that's, yeah. and, and that's what, <laughs> and that's what this kind of saying does as well. Because if you try and if you, if you think about that and, and what might be going on for somebody else, it automatically takes the sting or the annoyance out of how you're feeling because you go, yeah, actually, they might have had a really bad day, you know, really awful. Something's happened. And so they've snapped at me and they haven't meant to because I know that I haven't done anything wrong. And so there's something else going on there. And, you know, I can be one of those people that get quite het up. And why did that happen? Again, because I'm worried about what somebody thinks of me or have I done something Mm -hmm. wrong? And actually, you're not going to know. All you can do is be true to yourself and try not to walk in anyone else's shoes. And he's very good at being able to say that to himself and me. So Nick's promoting empathy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And my third one is meditate. Meditate, Mm. meditate. (laughs) Again, you know, I'm sure you've had this, people have said this before and everyone will go, oh, you know, I've heard this a million times, but it's changed my life, honestly. And I'm not somebody, I always said, I'm not going to be able to get into meditation. I can't sit still for long enough. My brain doesn't switch off. But the way that I managed to get into it is thinking, 
this is 10 or 15 minutes for me. I don't have to do anything else in this time. If my mind wanders, it will. I'll bring it back. It's about creating space. And that's what a lot of this teaching is. And actually that helps you so much in everything else you do. Being able to stop, take a step back and give something space. It helps in your work life. It helps in relationships. If Nick and I have been bickering like husband and wife do, especially when we've lived together for a year and not had a day apart like everybody else, it's very easy to just react. And I'm not saying I'm perfect and I do it all the time. I definitely don't. But it has definitely helped me before that reaction kicks in, just to give it space. And if you give something, even a few seconds of space, you find that your reaction will change. And usually it's for the better. And it's helped me hugely in any of those situations. If I'm getting flustered and feeling overwhelmed with the workload that I've got on, I will just stop and meditate. And I did it before we did this today. Problems with technology and this, that, the other. And I was like, stop, meditate. Just ground for a minute. Yeah. And I think it's incredibly important. And to, to my friends that have said, you know, I can't sit for that long. 10 minutes, 10 minutes is nothing. You've always got time for 10 minutes. It doesn't matter how busy you are. You've always got time for that. And even if it's less, five minutes, whatever, yeah. you can find the time to do that. I did have a fourth one, which I don't know is, <laughs> but it's just it, wine. <laughs> wine for me if you need that glass of wine, I'm not saying that you have a bottle <laughs> or to get drunk, but you know, everyone needs a glass of wine every now and, and again. There's and no it, judgment <laughs> from Rian. <laughs> Well, with that, I will say thank you. I do want to agree with you about the meditation being an absolute game changer. And I love your advice for people who might think, oh, it's a bit woo or it's weird or just five minutes, five or 10 minutes just for yourself. Don't overthink it. I think that's very good advice. I've loved it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Sharing Tales. Make sure to visit our website, www.rebeccaclark.co.uk forward slash sharing tales where you can subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode while there if you've enjoyed what you've heard we'd really appreciate a review and a rating to help other people find this show if you'd like to tell your friends and family that would be amazing too big thanks to our sound producer and editor the wonderful erin mcguire at beyongolia productions Be sure to tune in next Monday for a new episode. Bye-bye for now.